I'm really excited to speak to you this morning from Ecclesiastes. I think this is one of the most important books in the history of humanity. Um, No matter where you're coming from, no matter what you believe, the book of Ecclesiastes is asking questions that you are asking. Uh, It asks perennial questions that has faced humanity forever. Uh, And if you read this book, it was written thousands of years ago, but you would sense that it might have been written yesterday. It is that uh, perennial in, in the way that it approaches the main dilemmas of life. And for that reason, I love reading Ecclesiastes. Um, and I think um, God has a lot to teach us this morning from these passages. Um, Ecclesiastes was, was written by someone called the teacher or the preacher. The Hebrew word for that is kohelet. You might hear people talk about Kohelet when they talk about Ecclesiastes, Uh, but Kohelet was a king over Israel in Jerusalem, Um, and his target audience, I have good news, was all humanity, (laughs) anyone who has ever lived under the sun. So that's good news for you this morning, because that means this is for you, this is for me. Um, And his goal in the book of Ecclesiastes was to provide wisdom on how to cope with the inevitable frustrations of life. Uh, which we all face. It's a a search for meaning under the sun. He's using wisdom and experience to observe life. And we're going to look at this this morning of how not only does he look at what can I perceive in the world, but how is it that I need God's word to make sense of this world? It's almost like a puzzle, right? You have all these puzzle pieces and you have all the pieces in place, but until you have the right pieces in the right places, the picture is not complete. And Ecclesiastes is is one way of looking at the world and saying, I have a sense of how things should be, but it's not that way. And we need something from outside to put the pieces in the right place, to give us the right clues. And that is God's word. It shows us that it's the fear of God that is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge is just as much spiritual as it is intellectual. Wisdom really comes from God. And that if you, with the lenses of God's word, we're able to see behind the facade and see the ultimate reality of how things are. That God alone is the one who gives wisdom, knowledge, and delight in life. So that's what Ecclesiastes is bringing us to see this morning. And we're going to look at that specifically in the context of our work. Uh, What does that mean for our work this morning? Well, I invite you now to stand as I read God's word from Ecclesiastes. We'll we'll start in uh, chapter 2, verse 18, and we'll go all the way through chapter 3, verse 15. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? 
for all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let me pray for us this morning. Almighty God, thank you for your word. May you impart wisdom to us, Holy Spirit. Illuminate our understanding as we explore your word. Give us the eyes of faith to behold you and to behold what this has to do with us this morning and how you can shape us by your good news. As, as we approach our work, as we go from this place, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So could you relate as that was being read? When you think about your own work, uh, maybe it's schoolwork. Maybe it's uh, the job that you do day in and day out. Maybe you've been at your job for 15 years. And for the last 10 years, you've been wondering, should I be in this job? Um, Have you ever been in your work and you've thought to yourself, what is the point? What is the point of me spending all of these hours here? I think you can relate to what is being said this morning in Ecclesiastes. Uh, And in Ecclesiastes, there's a primary enemy that you see throughout the book. And it's this idea of vanity. It's a Hebrew word, hevel. And it means uh, it's a mist, 
it's transitoriness. It's things come and go. It's meaningless. That life can so often feel worthless. It can feel like it's here for a second and it's gone. And what's the point? And so often that's how our work feels. You know, I think about these amazing works uh, in the world that we no longer even have with us today. You know, you read in history about great wonders that were built, and they're not even here. I remember when I was in high school, my family, we took a trip, uh, cruise, and we made a stop in Mexico, the Yucatan Peninsula, and we went to Chichen Itza. It was these incredible Mayan ruins. And you see this, it's an amazing temple, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years old. And you look at it, and this is just a fraction of what was there. A whole civilization gone. And we don't even know the names of the people who built these incredible structures. And, And you learn it took them decades and decades, generations and generations to build all of these things, and it's gone. And all we have is is a few ruins, and we don't even have the names of those who built them. It can lead us to ask, what's the point? Am I just going to leave my work to someone who will squander it after me? So how how should we think about our work? Chances are, I mean, most likely you're going to spend a very large portion of your life working in the workplace. Uh, That is... A normal part of life. So how should we think about it? What role should work play in our life? And what do we do when our work feels meaningless? Or worse, when it feels like our work is destroying us? Well, this passage has good news for us when it comes to our work. And it's this. When we live for our work, our work becomes toil. But when we live for God, our work becomes a gift. So when we live for our work, our work becomes toil. But when we live for God, our work becomes a gift. And we're going to see that in a few ways this morning from this passage. We'll look first at what makes for meaningful work. And then we'll see how we've distorted meaningful work in our lives. And then finally we'll see how Jesus restores our work and gives it true meaning. So we'll look here at, at meaningful work. And you really see this um, in, in verse, chapter 2, verses 24 through uh, chapter 3, verses 11, where the author has, um, the preacher has taken a positive turn. So far, things have been quite negative in the book of Ecclesiastes for this teacher. He said, life is meaningless. Everything is vanity. I've pursued this. I've pursued that. And it's brought me no joy. It's, it's meaningless. But then he, ha- he begins to have a positive turn. And he's beginning to see things with the lenses of God. That if you bring God into the picture, actually things can look different. He says you can actually have eat. You can eat. You can drink. You can have enjoyment. And you can find satisfaction in these things. Why? Because they're gifts from God. Not because they're They are good ends in and of themselves, but because they are gifts from God. And he even says wisdom, knowledge, and joy. These are things that are good because they're gifts from God. But if you seek them apart from God, it will lead to destruction and meaninglessness. It will lead to vanity, a striving after the wind. And, you know, there's this beautiful poem um, that you're probably familiar with. You've probably heard before in chapter 3, verses 2 through 8. 
when it talks about the times and the seasons. What, what is this poem really all about? Well, it's a recognition by this preacher that God is in control of time. If you don't think that there is a God who is controlling time, who is the author of all existence, who is really sovereign, there is not a time for these things. It's all meaningless. It's all absurd. You can't live as if there's a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up, because all there is is now. All you have is the time that you create. You can't live with this kind of view of the world that because God is in control, I can trust him. And I know that there won't, it won't always be a time to plant. Sometimes it will be a time to pluck up what I plant. And so this all plays into a, a view of work that is meaningful under God's sovereignty, under a view of, of life where God is in control. Um, and I think that's the type of work that we all want. We want to see our work as a gift, as something we can enjoy, but also see it as a way we can serve the world. Uh, and I think there's some, there's some powerful examples of this you know, th throughout literature and things like that. You see, um, I think one great example is in the Christmas Carol. You know, around Christmas time, we usually watch maybe the movie or you read the play or, or the book by Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol. And you have Ebenezer Scrooge, right? This very uh, wealthy but very unhappy man. Um, he has uh, amassed an incredible amount of wealth for himself, but um, he doesn't live that way. Uh, he... he is very stingy with his money. He's very cruel towards others, but he's worked very hard in his life, yet he's incredibly unhappy. But he has a man who works for him, Bob Cratchit. And, and Bob Cratchit uh, is not nearly as wealthy as Mr. Scrooge, and Mr. Scrooge often makes him work long hours in ways that would make me feel like I was working in a place of vanity. But Bob Cratchit actually takes joy in his work. And you see throughout the story, he has a family at home that he, he takes care of. And he takes joy in his family. He, he enjoys the gifts of God and life. So even though his work is very mundane, he's not doing the high-level things that Mr. Scrooge is doing. Uh, he, he's doing the things that we might consider uh, basic clerical work. But he takes great joy in it because he sees that it's a gift from God. Another great example um, one of my favorite uh, novelists is uh, Walker Percy, and uh, he wrote uh, several novels in the second half of the 20th century, uh, but he, he wrote a lot about the despair of modern life. And uh, he, it, there's in one book, The Last Gentleman, he compares these two family members and their approach to the despair of modern life. There's one man, Sutter, this is the Vaught family. Sutter is a, a doctor, He's done very, very well for, for himself. Um, he's, uh, and by all means, he's doing something very meaningful. He's a physician. He's a surgeon. He's, he's saving people's lives. But his view of the world is that, what, what's the point anyway? We're all going to die. It's all going to be meaningless. And so Sutter actually gets to the point where he's seriously contemplating taking his own life. Well, he's contrasted with his sister, Val. Val was a brilliant student. She worked very hard uh, to achieve the things that we're all looking for in life, but she actually gave it all up to go live in a monastery in rural Arkansas and do very mundane work to serve the community there. And Val is very satisfied with her life. 
Um, They are both facing a consumeristic world uh, that seems like complete meaninglessness and vanity. But for Val, she's seen that this is actually my work is a gift from God, that God has entered the picture for her. Therefore, her work has meaning. And even though she's doing mundane things, it has meaning in her life. You know, you can see that this is all over the place. You can see it in television and movies and, um, uh, you know, novels. You see it everywhere um, where you have a contrast of what meaningful work could be with how meaninglessness enters into our lives. So how do you think about your own work? When you look at the day in and the day out, What is your common attitude towards your work? Where do you find yourself? On a Monday morning, what what is in your mind? What is in your heart? Do you see God in the picture of your work? This is an invitation for us to take that seriously, that God actually has given us our work as a gift and that there's possibility for it to be incredibly meaningful, not because it's necessarily meaningful in the world's eyes, but because it has been given to us by God to be a gift from God and a gift to our neighbors. So we see here a picture of meaningful work under God's sovereign rule, under God's fatherly care, that work can be a gift. But we see also that work can be distorted. And we see that really in the first few verses here. Uh, when we see verses, um, chapter 2, verses 18 through 23, follow along with me. The preacher says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest." This also is vanity. It's not a pretty picture of work, is it? It's all vanity. It's all toil. It's a vexation, a frustration. All it does is create problems in my life. And even if I work hard and I do well, who's to say it will be taken care of by the people that come after me? What is the point of it all? You see this phrase that comes up, a lot in Ecclesiastes, under the sun. That's a regular refrain. You see it in verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. So why does he use this phrase over and over again? Well, he's referring to the cycle of human life on earth, you know, under the rising and setting of the sun. But he's also referring to a life without reference to something beyond the sun, Oftentimes when he's using this phrase, he's saying, this is just life as it is without God in the picture. It's just life under the sun. Uh, There's a a philosopher named Charles Taylor, and he created a phrase for this idea. He wrote a massive book 
It's about 800 pages long called A Secular Age. And, um, and what he says, he, he, he's looking at the history of Western civilization up until the modern day. And he's looking at how did we become a secular people? How did we enter this secular age? And what does it really mean for us to be secular? And one of the key ideas he comes up with in that book is that we live in modern society with an imminent frame. So what he's saying is, by imminence, he's opposing that to transcendence, something beyond the here and now, something beyond what we can see and feel here in the present, something beyond just the present time, that there is a spiritual reality outside of this. But he says, in the modern world, in the secular world, we live in an imminent frame. This is all we have. There is nothing beyond. And so this is what life is under the sun. It's life in a fallen world without the hope of God or transcendence. Where God is seemingly absent. And another key phrase that's used without, uh, throughout uh, Ecclesiastes is a striving after the wind. It's a striking picture. Now, have you ever tried to catch the wind? You know, to strive after, I want to capture the wind. Well, you will always fail. It's impossible. You can't capture the wind. So striving after the wind is the most meaningless thing you can do. It's always toil. It's futile and it's vanity. And that is what this preacher has seen about work under the sun. Without God in the picture, work becomes distorted. And it gets distorted in a couple ways. Without God in the picture, work is either an enemy or a false god. So it's an enemy in that it, it's, it's just pointless. This is a common movie narrative. You know, you have the main character. They're in their daily work. Um, they're in the, the, their office with poor lighting, and they go in day in and day out to their cubicle, and it's boring and meaningless. But then all of a sudden, they get the courage to go and to break out of this mundane routine and do something adventurous and do something um, that really speaks to them. Uh, that's, so, that is very, that's a very common narrative that we see. But that's speaking to this idea. Work is just an enemy. It's just pointless. Why are we even doing it at the end of the day? What will it mean? It's just getting in the way. Or work can become a false god without God in the picture. Because we are all worshipers by nature. We will all look for something to worship, to find our meaning and purpose in. And for many, many of us, especially in our country, especially in our city, we look to work for our meaning and purpose, for our status. And that leads to distortion and destruction. Um, you know, I work with international students at SMU. These are very intelligent individuals. Uh, they are very talented. They're typically the cream of the crop um, from their communities. Uh, and they've worked very hard to get to where they are, to be able to come here, uh, to be able to have these opportunities to advance their career. And if you ask them, why are you here? I say, because I want to get a really good job. I, I want to succeed. I want to advance my career. I want to find opportunities. And so... What we have to do is I have conversations with them, and I say, so, and then what? What do you want to do with that career? What's the point of that job? What do you hope to do with that? And oftentimes, I get a lot of blank stares. 
Uh, and that's not just them. That's most of us. What, what do you mean? You know? Um, but you see, for, for many of them and for many of us, that has become the only goal of their life, is to succeed in their career. And work has become their, their false god, the thing that they look to to give them value. And they begin to bump up against their own limits. You know, if, if work is the thing that you worship, if someone comes after you at work, you'll do whatever it takes to protect yourself. You'll break the rules, right? You'll do illegal things. This is so often what happens when people get caught doing illegal things at work. Why? It was because they felt threatened. Their status at work was threatened. Their hope of gain was threatened. So they had no choice but to do something that was wrong. If work becomes your God, it will destroy you. It will lead to chaos. Well, this is a very bleak picture of work. But I I would argue that it's the picture that we most see in our life. If you ask someone about, you know, it's one of the first questions we ask our neighbors, right? What do you do? What's your work? Um, it's not a bad question, but it tells you just how much we identify with our work. Right? It, it, it becomes the thing that really defines us in many ways. But what you'll often get is, oh, I don't want to bore you with those details. You know, my job's, <laughs> it, it's almost an embarrassment. I don't really want to talk about my job. Or it's, I can't wait to tell you about my job and how much uh, it really matters to me, and it's all I want to talk about. But these quickly devolve into these two distorted views of work. But work, as we saw, is meant to be a gift from God, but it's a gift we often misuse. I've used this illustration with my students before um, because we talk a lot about God's gifts and how we turn God's gifts often into false gods. Um, And so this is what we do. Imagine that I came to you, um, or let's turn this around. Imagine you came to me and you said, Fee, thank you so much for preaching. Uh, It's it's wonderful to get to know you. Here's a brand new iPad that I want to give to you. This gift to you, I feel like you could probably use it um, and you would enjoy it. Here is this brand new iPad. And I said, oh, thank you so much. You know, I've been looking for something to eat my dinner off of. We're out of plates, and I could really use this. You know, this will be perfect. It's flat. I could fit all my food on there. This is exactly what I need. Well, you would be quite offended by that because I'm misusing this gift you're giving me that has incredible potential, but I'm using it. All I see is a plate, right? Well, that's so often what we do with the gifts of God. So what do we do in this predicament? How do we respond to these distorted views of work? And how can Jesus restore our work? Well, we see here in verses 12 through 15 how God restores our work. Look with me at those verses there. He says, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, 
That which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. So we see here a a view of work that has been restored by bringing God into the picture. And we've talked about this a little bit, about how our worship fundamentally affects our work. What you worship will affect the way that you work. I think the answer to meaningless work is worship. The answer to destructive work is worship. Because worship changes everything. And we see here that God's word, it gives us a new perspective and a new promise for our work. You see, what what the preacher is doing here, by bringing God into the picture, he's saying, you know, we don't actually have the full picture. And that's okay. Because God is in control. You know, he says, God has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Well, if eternity is in your heart, which is in everyone's heart, no matter what you believe, you long for eternity. You long to go on forever. But if you don't believe in God, if you don't have trust in God, all that is is a vexation. It's just a frustration. It, all it does is create distortion in your life. But if you do trust God, it allows you to say, you know what? God knows the big picture. And so that every day I go into work, And I think, what was the point of my work today? What was the point of all the little mundane things I did, all the little interactions with my coworkers, all of the very detailed things that seem meaningless? What was the point of that? Well, you could say, God knows the big picture. And as a follower of Jesus, there is not a thing that you do that doesn't have to do with the kingdom of God. Everything you do as a follower of Jesus can be done to the glory of God. And he will use it in some mysterious way for the building of his kingdom. And we don't know what that is always. Sometimes it's very obvious. Sometimes you get that sense of satisfaction. Yes, what I did, I see the big picture. I know God will use this. Sometimes you come home and you think, what was the point of all that? But you can take refuge in the fact that God has the big picture. Even when you don't, as a follower of Jesus, you can trust God has the big picture. He has an end for you in mind. And this allows us to find peace and contentment in our work. Did you notice he says, you can find pleasure in your toil? That is a striking phrase, pleasure in my toil. But he says, you can do this because you see that your work is a gift from God. You can find contentment there. You can see that what you do is actually contributing to what God is doing in the world. Now you may be saying, that sounds great, but that's still not enough for me. My work still seems so fragile. It still seems so meaningless in the big picture. You don't know what I do for work. You've never stepped in my shoes. Well, this passage also gives us a promise. It doesn't just give us a new perspective. It gives us a new promise. And that's in verse 14, which is a key verse. He says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing could be added to it 
nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Whatever God does endures forever. And if you belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ, that means he is at work in you to bring about work that will endure forever. Only God can allow us to see beyond this horizon to the hope of a new creation, that what God is doing will last forever. And he does it so that we will fear before him. And that is good news. That if you fear God, if you reverence God, the whole picture of the world will look different to you. Because the kingdom of God will go on forever. And in some mysterious way, your work will endure. And I want to close here with with this picture from 1 Corinthians 15 which I think is so powerful because it's showing primarily your labor is not in vain. As a follower of Jesus, as a participant in God's work of new creation, everything you do matters. Every single thing. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So think not only what is vain, what is fleeting, cannot inherit what is eternal. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The gift of immortality, which we have through faith in Jesus, takes away the sting of death. The sting of, when I die, what's going to happen to my work? Well, God knows. And what you've done will matter to him. And it will matter in his new creation. He says this, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And that that phrase, in the Lord, is key. Your work in the Lord is not in vain because you will put on the imperishable through Jesus you will be ushered into a new creation and one day you'll get to see what all your work was contributing towards because God was shaping you through all of it. It was God's gift to you and it was your gift to the world. So you can be confident that in the Lord, in the fear of the Lord, your work matters and that Jesus, he took the form of a servant and he worked on our behalf to bring this about. So that instead of hevel, instead of vanity, instead of striving after the wind, what do we get? We get the rock of ages. Something of substance. Something that is sturdy and cannot be moved. And that is God's gift to us this morning. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, 
we thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes, a book that is filled with enigmas, that causes us to think and causes us to reflect and asks really good questions. Thank you for challenging us and confronting us with this word. Lord, we are grateful for the work that you've given to us, but we also admit that so often our work has become an enemy or it has become a false god, that we have distorted the gift of work in our lives. And Lord, I pray for wisdom as we think about our work. Give us wisdom to approach our work with discernment and with judgment, with charity and compassion. Help us to see our work in the bigger picture of your new creation. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that you gave your life as a ransom for many, that we know we belong to you by grace, and that through our trust in you, our work is not in vain. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.